Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to the second episode of The Rest is Politics Holiday Special and Roundup of the Year with me, Rory Stewart. And me ask Cameron, what's, um, what's special about it exactly? Well, what, what's special about it is that we're trying now to do the whole of 2023. Uh, and this is a two-parter. Hopefully people will have listened to us yesterday. And by doing the whole of 2023, I think we're going to begin to see some shapes and themes, mm. which we often don't get in the, in the day-to-day fight of the weekly politics. Now I have a question for you for part two. Yeah. What was your surprise the year? What surprised you in 2023? Oh, David Cameron coming back. That was that was the only thing that nobody had a whiff of that, did they? For international listeners, just remember, our former Prime Minister, David Cameron, suddenly came back as the Foreign Secretary, having not been a Member of Parliament. Very, very unusual in our yeah. parliamentary system. No, and so he went to the House of Lords as Lord Cameron of Chipping Norton. Um, they all forgot about all the Greensill scandal and all the other stuff. And he's now globetrotting. And as you said yesterday, you know, pretty busy trying to get Britain's foreign policy back on the map. Yeah. It was interesting, earlier this week, he met both Macron and Maloney. Now, I don't think many foreign secretaries would meet heads of state and government like that. No. So that's because think, he was a former prime minister. Exactly. I think he's one of those very, very rare. The, the only equivalents I can really think of are, of course, US secretaries of state, and particularly when they were people like John Kerry oh, yeah. and, sure. and, and Hillary Clinton, who'd been leaders. Yeah. Um, your surprise of the year? My surprise of the year... I think probably two big things. Um, the first thing is that cliche from detective stories, the dog that didn't bark. Oh. Um, in this case, the fact that the horrors of October the 7th, uh, the terrorist attack, the horrible terrorist attack perpetrated by Hamas, and then the horrors of what we've seen in Gaza and these retaliatory strikes have not yet led to a regional conflict. And I think that's something that would have been very difficult to predict. People were absolutely assuming that Hezbollah would be drawn in much more quickly, Iran through Hezbollah, that other regional players, and that this would almost be like the beginning of the First World War in which the Balkans was the tinderbox for exploding a regional conflict. So I think the dog that didn't bark is the way in which this thing is horrifying. It's become globalized, but it hasn't yet brought in regional military responses. And then on the other side, the very rapid collapse of democratically elected governments in Africa 2023 was, amongst other things, the year of coup d'etats, seven coup d'etats in just over a year, and not just now stretching right the way across the Sahel, so connecting coast to coast. You, you've talked about Sudan, but stretching right the way across Mali, mm. Chad, Niger, but also dropping down to Gabon and almost in, in Sierra Leone. So that, that's, that's my surprise of the year. Mm. I, I wonder that I was interested, presumably you might also add in the Dutch elections? I'm not sure I was that surprised about that. No, I was. I was. I thought in the end that Wilders wouldn't win. So yeah, that was a surprise. That genuinely was a surprise, yeah. And I think horrifying horrifying for the Netherlands. I mean, I, I think we got a lot of feedback on our attempts to explain our way through the details of Dutch politics. Mm. But one of the reasons I think we got such taut and sometimes quite angry responses is it must feel to many people in the Netherlands as it does in the United States when Donald Trump was uh, elected, that they are just in absolute shock that Hert Wilders, this this sort of almost 
comical right wing, but not comical in sort of in a, in a nasty way. Also, um, mm. right wing figure who's been sort of marginalised since the late 1990s has now managed to get more votes than anybody else in the election without even really having a valid political party. Yeah, I mean the reason why maybe I, I was surprised that he did as well as he did, but I think that we've been talking a lot this year about the rise of populism or the, the continuing hold of populism in certain countries, which is why I was so pleased we both were that Donald Tusk won in Poland. Um, but, you know, we, we had an election in uh, near Dresden, a mayor election last week, where the AFD won it. Um, so this idea that the alternative for Deutschland are not a party of power, they now have an elected an elected mayor. And you can see it's having, a, it's having an effect on other politicians. One of the big stories in Germany at the moment is the focus on Marcus Söder, who is the minister president, the prime minister, as it were, of Bavaria. Bavaria is the sort of economic powerhouse of Absolutely. Germany in some ways. Yeah, yeah. He's the leader of the CSU, which is the sister party of the CDU. But he's one of those rare Bavarians who's sometimes seen as a, a possible future chancellor. And he's been... Um, up to all sorts of stuff, which I think is a direct response. So, for example, there he is in Bavaria. There was a story about a, a nursery in Hamburg, and the story was a kind of tab classic tabloid. Hamburg, of course, North Germany, so other end of way, the country. Way, way miles, hundreds of miles away from, from Bavaria. And the story was that, the, that this nursery had banned a Christmas tree. Okay. Now, it turns out they've never had a Christmas tree <laughs> because they find in lots of these nurseries that small children, if you have a Christmas tree, they tend to crawl under it, pull it down, and it's a bit dangerous. So they have everything else to do with Christmas, but not a Christmas tree. Marcus Serda, the minister president of Bavaria, has made a huge thing about this, you know, Christmas is cancelled, all this nonsense, which you've seen as a populist right all around the world. And that I find quite alarming because on the one hand, it shows that the way to the, he thinks to play the populace is to play their own game. I think he's wrong, but it also shows I think that the AFD are sort of setting the tone of debate. And, and we keep coming back to this, don't we? Because of course, the success of the populace isn't usually that they are geniuses. They're being successful all over the place. Swedish Democrats in Sweden, you know, with genuine neo-Nazi roots, with actual senior members of their party. Being exposed and expelled for basically mm. being Nazis, mm. Finns, Maloney, etc. But it's not that these people are geniuses, it's that there is a huge vacant space which seems to make it easy for populists at the moment. And of course, that is partly the failure of the moderate politicians. If you were to talk to these populists, they'd say, Yeah, it's, it's not that I've invented a whole new sort of charisma, that I'm the most brilliant campaigner in the world. It's pretty easy at the moment in European mm. politics to mm. win votes by standing up and talking about immigration because people feel the main parties are not dealing with immigration the way they want. Talk about failing economies and frozen growth, get people very skeptical about climate, get people very skeptical about cultural change. That's why the Christmas stuff is coming in. And, and that then means that the mainstream politicians have two choices. They either, as you say, try to get into that zone. And that's where both you and I have been very uncomfortable with the direction the Conservative Party in Britain sometimes takes to try to steal those lines on immigration and small boats. And, and it goes wrong for them, of course, because they, you yeah. can't outcompete the populists on the right. Because in the end, Rishi Sunak is always going to be more controlled by, you know, in, in our case, 
Victoria Prentice, an attorney general who's trying to be moderate and thoughtful, trying to hold some bits of international law together. So you can always be outmaneuvered by the right. The alternative, though, which you're proposing is still quite difficult, which is how do you make a really attractive, exciting, charismatic message in the center ground and take the oxygen away from these people? Well, I think on immigration, I saw um, John Nicholson, the SNP MP, who was, I can't remember where I saw him, but I, I saw him interviewed somewhere where he was saying that the entire debate, for example, around immigration is focused as a negative. Nobody making the positive case for immigration in a modern economy. And we've ended up with the worst of all worlds, where on the one hand, you have a government that is saying, we're gonna, we've taken back control of our borders, we're going to get a group of immigration, etc. And meanwhile, because of economic need, and then this much smaller number that are coming through the boats, because of economic need, we're seeing net migration soar. Now, I actually think if we'd had a politics which was honest about the need for immigration and which was educating people about the way that migration flows are going to get worse, not better, more complicated, not more simple because of climate, because of war, because of inequality, etc. Then I think you can, I think people can be, the, 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 the mainstream is much, much more reasonable. But they're, if, you, if, if they're being bombarded with one set of arguments, then the debate gets completely skewed. And I, th I worry that too many of the politicians have just allowed the debate to be skewed and now they're scared of it. Well, can you imagine how very different the Brexit debate would have been if the pro-Brexit politicians had said, uh, we're going to take back control and that's going to mean that we will have 1.2 million people coming into the United Kingdom. They just <laughs> won't happen to be people from Poland, right? They'll happen yeah. to be people from Nigeria, India. South Asia, yeah. etc. But we'll we'll have we'll be making those decisions. Now they put little sort of footnotes in where they implied, but they boy did they never say to their voters, we're gonna go from, you know, net figures of low hundreds of thousands and push up four hundred thousand, six hundred thousand additional people a year after we leave the European Union. Yeah. Um and if, if that had been clear at the beginning, that the trade-off, given that so much of the Brexit vote was about immigration, that people had been clear at the beginning that the trade-off was between probably lower numbers coming from the European Union or higher numbers coming from other parts of the world, I think the vote would have been quite different. Okay. Well, listen, let's jump forward to our, our next category, which I'm, I'm, I'm going to jump forward a few because I think it flows from this. Personal highlight of the year. Okay. Now, I had a few going through this. Obviously, both of us very happy to get our books to number one in the Sunday Times bestseller list. That's a highlight. I was, oh, and, and can I have a little show off here? Go on. I'm, I'm back at number one again. You're not. I'm back at, I am. I'm back at for number Christmas. one for Christmas. Yeah, well done. I'm back at number one. Oh, being there number one at Christmas, that's, that's very special. Thank you. And I think it's a bit of a shout out to Goalhanger because I think the rest is entertainment. Richard Osman is top of the fiction hardback charts oh, at the same wow. time as I'm top of the nonfiction. So there we wow. are. The, the, best ga the best rest is politics gag of the year was from the comedian Michael Spicer, who said last week he was going to launch a podcast called The Rest is the Rest. <laughs> and he was going to talk about otters, lawnmowers, and lawns. <laughs> and Tuesdays, I think. Oh, Tuesdays as well, yeah. Um, so the other one for me, though, this relates to our previous discussion, was actually when I did Question Time in Clacton in an audience that had 100% voted leave. And lots of people, you gave me some very good advice. A young girl at the school I visited on the way to the studio to, to the recording gave me some very good advice, which I've used many times since, persuade without judgment, she said. And I was very grateful for that. Um, 
But why was the reason it was a personal highlight is because so many people said you're mad doing it. They'll they'll howl at you. They'll shout you down. But actually, they didn't, and they listened very respectfully. They applauded very loudly when I said that the problem wasn't them. The problem was the people that had lied to them. And I think on some of these debates, there has to come a point where Labour, Lib Dems, SNP stand up and say to the public, are you ever going to get tired of believing these people's lies? And I think on Brexit, I'm sorry, I'm going to keep banging on about it because eventually, I think, whether it's going back into the European Union, very unlikely in my lifetime, possible in your lifetime, but certainly going back into some sort of sensible economic arrangement, I've got no doubt that is going to happen sometime. Yeah, and I, I think this is a really interesting moment because I think for you and I, who would at least want to see us back into the European Union Customs Union, which would be much, much better for uh, Great Britain, Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland, much better for our automobile manufacturers, much better for our farmers, etc., and keep us closest to our closest big markets. Um, but it's also an interesting moment because there's a real crisis in the European Union at the moment about thinking about the accession of these countries in the Western Balkans. We're talking mm -hmm. about the accession of Ukraine. We're talking about the accession of Moldova. We're talking about Serbia, Kosovo. So it may be that there is a world in which the UK could begin to define, as it were, an outer circle of Europe, mm -hmm. very close to Europe politically and economically without necessarily being part of the inner political structures and provide actually an interesting space for some of those yeah. those other countries as well. I guess the other personal highlight for us, Roy, is the fact that the podcast has sort of chugged along so well and topped the charts most of the time. And leading, we've been very, very lucky with some of the interviews that we had. But on, on this theme, I hope people will listen in fairly soon to our interview with Guy Hofstadt because he has some very interesting things to say about the future of Europe. Can I just some personal highlights then, if you've in introduced this, this uh, category? Um, for me, personal highlight, I think, has been that this has been the year of my transition back to Britain. I was away for nearly three years. I was uh, teaching in the United States, and then we were living in Jordan as a family. And the lovely thing for me has been, we got back about two and a half months ago, is how well um, my two boys, who are just now nine and six, have transitioned back into Britain. And so my personal highlight is a huge shout out to Miss Emma and Dr. Quinlan, who are their two teachers. Um, who have been such incredible examples of dedicated teachers who really love teaching six-year-olds and nine-year-olds, who've really brought out the best of them and really helped them transition back and made me very proud of Britain. So there we are. Good. Well done. Book of the year. Book of the year. Go on then. What's your book of the year? The one I chose in the New European was the book I've mentioned a couple of times on the podcast, Life in the Balance by Jim Down, who's an intensive care doctor. Um, absolutely brilliant account of of his life and the choices he has to make and the emotions he has to deal with. There has been a, an absolute plethora of books about the dire state of politics, yours, mine, but I don't think we can choose our own books. As, no, as, I don't as, think as that's really allowed. No, I no, think no, even no, I will no, no, stop no, with that. Yeah, um, I might bribe our, others to do our it. Own, <laughs> our own books as books of the year. Very good. Yes. Um, but I think that, although I see we've both been – nominated for the Parliamentary Book of the Year, but thankfully in different categories. So that's good. That's the, Thank goodness for that. Yeah. But I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, so shout out for Ian Dunn's book, shout out for James O'Brien's book, which have both been about how awful politics is. But the one I think that was, that maybe gave most hope amid all the absolute awfulness that it chronicled was Chris Bryant's book, Code of Conduct. It really did bring home just how 
awful this parliament has been from a standards point of view. But he then set out some pretty interesting ideas as to how you can fix it pretty quickly. Very good. Okay. Well, I mean, I think one of the lovely things about coming back to Britain, um, but I don't want to encourage any more of this because, uh, so please don't get the wrong end of the stick if anyone's listening to this. I have been sent some quite interesting proofs of books that are coming out next year. Please stop sending them to me because I'm afraid there's a limit to how many books I can read in a week. But there's a really interesting book coming that I think you'll enjoy by a guy called Gary Stevenson called The Trading Game, mm-hmm. which is a just shocking story of the only thing which I think is possibly more dysfunctional than politics, which is uh, working in an, the trading floor of an investment bank blowing up the world economy um, in 2008. <laughs> oh, is, is it about the crash? It's, a, it's about the crash. It's about him. He's a, he's a working class boy from a very um, for deprived background in the East End of London who is just a brilliant mathematician and gets hired by uh, one of the most famous banks in the world mm. and then proceeds to just go through the full horror and moral corruption of how mm. those banks operate. But I, I'm reading one at the moment, which is out next year, by Zainab Badawi, An African History of Africa. Which oh, great. You- Definitely enjoy, and uh, and I'm about a third of the way through. The two most interesting things I've learned so far, one is that I didn't realize Tutankhamun became king when he was eight, and the other is that- I, Cleop- I, I learned that actually from my, from my six-year-old, from the great Miss Emma. In fact, we made a mask of Tutankhamun together. Ah. He also got married very, very young. My six-year-old was very 12, interested and he in died, that. And he died at 18. <laughs> exactly. Uh, anyway, you will, you will definitely- Enjoy that one. Just on books here, very, very quickly, because we're, we're, we're a little bit of politics stuff. Um, um, I find Bill Gates a sort of impressive and infuriating individual um, every time I meet him. We seem to get into these sort of weird, strange arguments where he's absolutely determined to pulverize me and prove me wrong about every single thing that I say when we're trying to have a polite conversation. But his book, How to Avoid Climate Disaster, if you're looking for a good summary, um, it, it's really good. He's, okay. he, it's surprisingly well-written, thoughtful. And then my shout-out for my book of the year um, takes a little time to get going, but it's a book by Josephine Quinn, and it's called How the World Made the West. You've got to push through the first couple of chapters, but it's an astonishing description for anyone like me who's interested in archaeology, ancient history, the ancient world, of how much Western civilization as we know it, Greek and Roman civilization, was created by the Middle East, by Egypt, and particularly by the Levant, that sort of the shoreline mm. stretching from Gaza up into to modern Lebanon and Syria. Our gods, our writing, our numbers, our pottery, our statuary, our very, very fundamental belief systems. And it's the story of the Bronze Age. And, it's a, and Josephine Quinn, who's a, a British academic, uh, has managed to, I don't know how she keeps all this stuff in her head, but she has made archaeology of the Bronze Age more exciting than anything that I've read for a, a long time. Should we take a quick break and then maybe bring you in with a film of the year? Yep. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the second half of the second part of our look back at 2023 and kind of look forward to 2024. Film of the year, Rory. Blimey. Well, we were, we never talked about Barbie together. That definitely was not my film of the year. I, I, I was actually a bit distressed by Barbie. Um, mm. I, I've, it's actually been really sad. I mean, it's probably because I've got two young children and we don't, we don't get out enough. Um, I've been struggling on films. I did see a couple of great plays. Can I just quick shout out yeah. to the West End, which I think yeah. was pulling itself together. So both at the Harold Pinter Theatre, most recently I, I saw a, a play called Lioness. It's a new play, which I thought was a very strange, moving account of the breakdown of a marriage, of uh, of abuse, of questions around gender. I mean, I, I'm, I'm making it sound too theoretical, but I thought it was beautifully enacted with a, a dominating performance by Kristen Scott Thomas. Um, but my real shout out in that theatre is to a play called Semmelweis, written by a friend of mine called Stephen Brown, which had Mark Rylance in the starring role as the doctor who discovered essentially the beginnings of germ theory. He discovered that in the Vienna General Hospital in the late 19th century, mothers and babies were dying at an unbelievably alarming rate, much, much more in the wards looked after by doctors than in the wards looked after by nurses. And he tried to argue that what they needed to do was wash their hands. And for this suggestion, essentially, his career was completely destroyed and he went mad and oh. he was wrecked uh, for trying to suggest that people wash their hands and was then vindicated later. And this story beautifully brought to the stage um, in an incredible production um, by Tom Morris. Anyway, over to you on films. Excellent. Well, a couple of plays. Uh, Dear England by James Graham about Gareth Southgate and penalties. Absolutely brilliant. And honestly, you do not have to be a football fan to realise that it's a work of genius, which is what James Graham is. Um, my film of the year, I think, is Anatomy of a Fall. Ah. Sandra Huller, who's a German actress. Uh, it's a French-made film, which is mainly in English. And your play was about the breakdown of a marriage. This is about the breakdown of a marriage, but it's absolutely gripping. 
she is mesmerizing. Um, the story involves her husband falling off a balcony, and the and the kind of the the drama is the court case at which it has to be established: did he take his own life or did she kill him? But in the middle of it, part of the evidence is that he secretly taped conversations that he had with her, and these are played in the court, and then in the film they're acted out. And, and <laughs> so this is the rest is politics, right? When you see the way that these rows develop from something quite small into something brutally, intensely horrible between two people who claim to love each other, you kind of, in the middle of the Israel-Gaza thing, you kind of see how diplomacy has to sometimes be better than shouting at each it, other. It's a great title, isn't it? Anatomy of a Fall. Well, the fall is literally the fall off the balcony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's got this beautiful, this, this, the, the, the other star is this young boy who's their child who's going blind. Um, and he has this wonderful dog who's also a great character in the film. But honestly, you'd love it. And it, it, it's one of those films that the minute it finished, I'm, I'm, I always have this habit in the summer. I'm always the last to leave a cinema because I, I like to read the credits and I like to see how many people are involved and see what they're doing. But actually, I got to the end of this one and I kind of just wanted to stay in the cinema and watch it again. It's one of those films that I will watch again and I think it'll be even better second time around. Great. Okay. Well, now, did you have any, were there any novels that, that, that came through? I mean, I, I did enjoy Sebastian Falk's new novel, which is called Seventh Son, which has got a very, you know, a really intriguing um, development. I, 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 the thing is so much about the texture and details of the surprise plot that I, I can't actually describe it without a spoiler. Okay. <laughs> but if somebody wants an enjoyable Christmas read. Yeah, I've, I've definitely been more on the nonfiction, probably an influence of the podcast, more on the nonfiction than the fiction. But I think the best, and, and bear in mind, I, I only read German novels at the moment. So I'm probably going for Das Leben ist gut by Alex Kapus. I think that's the best novel I read this year. Oh, very um, good. Yeah. I mean, there's something interesting about novels, and which maybe we can, when we've got more time, explore a bit more. I mean, I was thinking about British novels. I, I very much was of the generation where there was this amazing thing where Granter had, you know, best of young British novelists, and was part of the generation where these people like Martin Amis, Julian Barnes, Kazuoshi Gurui, and McEwan, Salman Rushdie, um, all kind of sprung to prominence at the same time. And at the it's actually quite a male-dominated list, that, isn't it? But a sense that there were these great kind of celebrity writers, and I guess this was probably the 80s, early 90s. Um, and there's maybe it's a bit like a conversation about boxing, whether novelists are maybe less central to the kind of culture. I mean, obviously, you would have been able in the 80s, 90s to list off Martin Amis and Ishiguro yeah, and, and all I, these people. I, I, Which, and you'd find it more difficult now or maybe... I think it's also that there is, because the means of production and exchange have changed so much, there are more books out there. Um, but I still think you've, you've got a handful of, I mean, every, I guess the, the novel, and I'm, I'm trying to think of the novelists who every time they bring out a book, you'd want to read it. Ian McEwan, Ismail Kadari. But I mean, Ian McEwan's not getting any younger. Salman Rushdie's not getting any younger. Ismail Kadari, I think, is extraordinary, but again, mm. not getting any younger. Ishiguro has now, you know, got a got a Nobel Prize. But yeah, Murakami. V.S. Naipaul's now died. Hilary Mantel, who I think really was astonishing, died. John Le Carre, who was astonishing, died. Um, I think it's it's interesting. Maybe it's just that, as you say, it's much more diverse, and somehow novels, and it's definitely true of poetry, are becoming more specialized. You get a more mm. of a sense that 
there's a real group of enthusiasts who are following young up-and-coming novelists, but they're not sort of dominating the fronts of the newspapers. Absolute, total, I won't brook any argument on this one, best TV adaptation of novel, Slow Horses, Gary Oldman, absolutely the best thing on That's television I'm, this I'm year. modelling myself on him. As you can see, I haven't, haven't shaved today. I just are changed you wearing, my diet. Are you, are you wearing a really filthy coat? He's got a great, great management style. I do think. I mean, if we, we, I think maybe our next book could be, you know, how to manage by Jackson Lamb. <laughs> now, best new place visited, home or abroad. Go on then. I have got a picture of mine. Can you see that? Sort of. Yeah. Go on. Talk us through it. It's called the Forty Foot, and it's it's a cold water. Well, it's a swimming place. In a place called Sandy Cove, just outside. That's right. No, we talked about it when we were in Dublin. You were there. If you I thought stayed, it meant a 40-foot drop, and then you no. pointed out it was actually the 40th Regiment of Foot. It's right by what's known as the James Joyce Tower, and which is where the opening scenes of Ulysses took place, and where Buck Mulligan, who's Joyce's character, goes to the 40-foot, where he takes a dip, and it's described as the snot green sea, <laughs> the scrotum tightening sea. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. And then he says, epi oinopaponton. So he, it's <laughs> great, the snot green sea, the scrotum tightening sea, epa opa ono. And then I think he says, thalassa, thalassa, epi oinopaponton. Across the wine dark sea is what he's saying. He's quoting Homer, isn't he? Instead of buggering off back to London, if you just stayed overnight, you could have come with me and the, the guys oh, from KPMG. And my favourite quote from, and I actually could have gotten to the water and actually, instead of just being able to recite it, I actually would have put my toe in. I'll send a picture to put in the newsletter of this picture. It's of a group of people in snow alongside a sign, togs must be worn, which is there. <laughs> this is a place where people have been swimming for 250 years, but women have only been allowed for the last half century. But it is honestly, it was absolutely beautiful. It was one of the best places I've ever swum in. I once heard your, your friend Seamus Heaney, famous Seamus, give a lecture. One of the only lectures I ever went to at Oxford when he was professor of poetry, oh, which wow. focused on how important towers are to Irish literature. So he talked about James Joyce. He also talked about Spencer and his tower. He talked about Yeats and his tower. And he tried to connect the themes of Irish literature around the, uh, the theme of towers. So it's wonderful that she saw one of those towers. Was it convincing? Yeah, I thought he was. I mean, I just thought uh, that guy yeah. was so extraordinary. It, again, the strangeness of how culture changes, the way that Seamus Heaney or Ted Hughes dominated mm our sense of poetry and how many of us would struggle today to name poets who we feel have the same excitement and stature. Mm. When, we, when we come on to our cultural moment, our cultural event of the year, I ought to say ABBA because I've now seen it four times and it was absolutely brilliant, but I'm actually going to go- And remind us how that works. Well, it's ABBA Voyager, these, these avatars. It's all basically artificial intelligence, but it's absolutely brilliant. But, but ABBA is still alive, right? So it's people- They're still alive. Yeah. It's taken ABBA- from when they were in their prime, as it were. Yeah. And they've used dancers to, to record all these moves. So what you see, once you suspend your own sense of reality, you are basically watching ABBA back in the 70s and 80s. And it's unbelievable. However, I've given them enough plugs over the year. I'm going to pick out, as my cultural event of the year, the play about the peace process called Agreement, which was on at the Lyric in Belfast when we were over for the Good Friday Agreement anniversary events. And I'm thrilled to say it's going to open in New York in April and May next year. Oh, well, that's and it's wonderful. Brilliant. It's, it's about, it's about the, the final stages of the Good Friday Agreement talks. It's very, very moving. 
Oh, that's great. And I think we've done a big theme this year in Ireland. And uh, the guy I was missing, actually, now I've got to with um, the Seamus Heaney, his, his fourth tower is Louis McNeese in Carrick Fergus Castle. And well done. I didn't do my best uh, new place visited home or abroad. Do your best new place and do your cultural event. Okay, best new place visited. Um, I would say shout out to the Rwanda-Burundi border. Mm-hmm. I've spent quite a lot of time in Rwanda this year. Was Suella Braverman there at the time? Was it Braverman she or was Cleverly actually, who was there at the time? <laughs> so, I have actually, I've overlapped with a couple of ministers when I'm there, done a number of visits, um, because we're doing some very, very interesting programs with the Rwandan government on poverty uh, alleviation with Give Directly, direct cash transfers to remote communities. And it is a very beautiful country. It's a very, very mountainous country. I mean, it's famously known as the country of a thousand hills. It's a place where, of course, you can see mountain gorillas. It's a country going through an amazing development story, recovering from the genocide, caught up with some very complicated international politics, of which the um, the British immigration stuff is, is the least of them. Mm. But I thought that was beautiful. But probably most of all, if I was being honest, it's Japan. I was really lucky to get to bits of Japan that I'd never seen. I went to Naoshima, which is an island with modern art installations. I went to Isejingu, which is the great Shinto shrine of the Japanese royal family. And I, I was lucky enough, and this, this was with um, my friend Reid Hoffman, lucky enough also to go and see a place called Koyasan, which is where a, a form of esoteric Buddhism was started in the, in the mountains of Japan. And it remains an extraordinary country. I mean, despite its economy having been flatlining since the 1990s, despite demography going in the wrong direction, many things that would make you very anxious and corruption mm. scandals that we've talked about. It is, it is just a mesmerizing country. Mm. I um, should say I've flown less in the last 12 months than probably any time in my adult life. And that's been a deliberate choice, Rory. But I'm saying that partly to preempt the fact that I will be traveling in relatively near future to Asia and Australia. God, blimey, that's, well, that's going to make some challenges for us. I hope the eco-warriors won't shout at me too much. I've really, really tried this year and I've actually been quite, quite successful. Shout out to you. You have been good. You have been good. I noticed yeah. when I got on an internal flight, you got on a train, took the sleeper, arrived extremely grumpy and exhausted the next morning, but you did do your bit. Yeah. <laughs> what about your cultural event of the year? Cultural event of the year, I think quick shout out to the British Museum. It's got a great exhibition on Myanmar, Burma, worth going for restless politics listeners because it connects the unbelievably horrifying overlooked tragedy of Myanmar, Burma, to its extraordinary culture. Um, the Chanel exhibition at Victorian Art Museum, which uh, Shoshana and my mother really loved. Tom Hanks's Light Room, which my friend Tommy White has helped to produce. And then we're going to go together, I very much hope, to see Cabaret, which my friend Charlie Wood has helped to produce, which we could make a restless politics trip. We could wear our jackets We could go together. We'd go together in our jackets, yeah. Final one, I think, earlier in the year, the National Gallery did a fantastic exhibition on Assisi and St. Francis, which was underground. It wasn't covered much, but it was covering the story of that extraordinary medieval saint through relics, through portraits, through some amazing pieces of contemporary art, through photography, and really bringing to life somebody whose life was such a radical challenge to his age. Now, final category. Yes. Before we have a brief look ahead to 2024, campaigner of the year. Oh, well, that brings us back into politics. Come on then, give us campaigner of the year because we got, got a bit off politics, didn't we? We went a bit rest as entertainment. I'm going to go for three who are not politicians. Okay. I'm going to go for Fergal Sharkey. Yep. Rock star turned environmental campaigner. I think he's had more impact on the debate 
about water quality and sewage than any other person in this country by a long way. I mean, he's actually had an impact to the tune of about £100 billion worth of investment that's supposed to be going in, which will have to be paid for partly by these companies and partly by taxpayers. I mean, he's done something which will be not just an incredible challenge to these companies, but something that will make the UK Treasury or any government coming in think really take a deep breath because he's basically saying we should be paying for much higher water quality. He's brought the public along with him. He's won that debate. But my goodness, it's going to be a really expensive investment program to try to Mm. get this right. Similar age group, Carol Vorderman. I love the fact that Carol Vorderman has just become this radical, rebellious, noisy figure on social media. And I just love the way she gets up all the right noses. Remind people like me who she is and remind, or or as I like to say politely, remind international listeners who she is and what she's been doing. (laughs) Well, Carol Vorderman, I suppose you call her a TV personality, probably best known for Countdown, but has done lots and lots and lots of different things. But it's just in the last couple of years, really, has started to get very political, very angry about waste of public money, very angry about the lies that have been told by our government, very angry about COVID, very angry about just the sort of basic conduct of government. And she's really going for it. She's now tied up with another very good campaigner, Jolly and Morm, who runs the Good Law Project. Oh, he's the guy that goes out shooting foxes in his wife's kimono, is that right? Roy, two points. First of all, He doesn't go out doing it like it's his hobby, and he didn't shoot it. He clubbed it. You make it sound like when you go out hunting with King Charles, he doesn't do it in quite the same way. But so, but she's she's. I think she's made an impact. I I really do. And then the the other campaigner I want to single out is is Peter Stefanovic. Remind us again who he is. He's a lawyer turned sort of social media campaigner. But every single day, he takes apart interviews, statements, speeches by prominent, particularly government politicians, and basically tells the truth about the lies that they're telling. And he's just indefatigable. So hats off to him. Who's your campaigner of the year? Well, so let me try to, um, because we've become quite sort of jolly and rest is entertainment to you. So I'm going to be a bit grim for a bit. Um, I think 2023 has been a year which has not had really big, significant campaigns. If you think back to other years in the past, you know, really big campaigns that we'll remember, campaigns around HIV, AIDS, campaigns about making poverty history, campaigns about climate, Black Lives Matter, people like Malala, people like Grisha Thunberg. Um, it hasn't been one of those years. And I think that's partly because it's becoming, we are entering an age of uncertainty and isolation so I'd say the one person who's really made the running this year and has been an astonishing campaigner on a, a global level is Vladimir Zelensky, who has still managed against all the odds to somehow keep Ukraine on the agenda. And we'll be praying that he's able to keep that pressure up into yeah. next year. But I, I am worried about this question of campaigning because you're right to pick out those people, but they are quite domestic British. They're yeah. quite narrowly focused. I mean, in, in that list, I'd add the work that the IPP campaign has been doing, my friend Donna Mooney, I pay tribute to the Longford Trust on prisons. You know, we, we could make jokes about our friend Gary Lineker, but this stuff is tends to be quite domestic and inward looking. And we're losing, it's something we've talked about. I've been trying to lean into a campaign on global poverty this year. And my goodness, it's difficult to make progress. We're trying to get a fund off the ground, big international global fund to do for poverty what we've done for HIV, AIDS, 
and climate mm. in the past and deal with mm. the 700 million people who are living on less than $2 a day. And despite all the incredible evidence that's now developing, partly through Give Directly, partly through others, at how much difference we can make to those people's lives much more efficiently than we were able to in the past through the use of unconditional cash, we're not getting it going. Well, that probably is a product of the the tendency towards nationalism. A lot of these big international campaigns, they either get driven by grassroots, by politics and government, and or by celebrity. For example, you talk about Make Poverty History. The fact that you had lots of different grassroots campaigns, governments, not least ours, that were really at the heart of it, and big stars like Bono and Geldof and the rest of it. That's what you what you need. And trade union movements and churches. Trade union churches, etc. So that's what's missing. And there, maybe there's a challenge there to our listeners to think about the cause and the means by which we can get back some of these big international campaigns. I suppose the one that's closest to it is climate. I still think the climate campaigners, in the face of some pretty horrible hostility, have done a pretty good job this year. Okay, Rui, let's have a quick look ahead. Who do you think the politician of the year will be in 2024? Hopefully, Keir Starmer. Well, for me, who, whoever manages to defeat Donald Trump, yeah. I, I, I don't care who they are. I, they're my politician. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're my politician of the year. Um, I think, you know, we talk a lot about different ages. And if we think about the last decade as being basically a decade of populism, I think as we transition to 2024, the question we'll be asking ourselves is, is it going to be defined as the decade of AI or the decade, sadly, of global conflict? Mm. In other words, is Ukraine and what we're seeing in Israel, Gaza, a sign of a world getting ever more violent uh, and falling apart? So mm. that's the the razor edge I think we're, we're on going into the next year. Yeah. Yeah. My politicians to watch... I think Darren Jones is going to be interesting. Can tell us about Darren Jones. Well, he was—he absolutely blew my mind at an event I did where he said I was 11 when Labour came to power in 1997. It made me feel unbelievably old. But he's been chairman of a select committee and he's just been promoted to the Labour shadow cabinet as shadow chief secretary. But if he becomes chief secretary in a Labour government, that's going to be a, an interesting one to watch. There are lots of elections next year, but I think one of the most important is one of the earliest. Early January, we've got the election in Taiwan. That is going to be interesting because, of course, somebody said there are the three parties that are standing, but there's a fourth party. It's called China. And relations with China are going to be defined. They're going to define that campaign. And the result is then going to define what happens there because, of course, the governing party, which has got a new candidate because the, the president can't do another term, they're in the lead. But the other parties which were going to come together, that fell apart at the last minute. But if they do do well, they have a much more, I guess they would call it pragmatic approach to China, one of which is much, much closer to the idea of reunification. So that's going to be a very, very interesting election to watch. Yeah. So I think the, the politicians in general to watch from my point of view are, are we going to be able to find next year another Donald Tusk to take your hero from this year? So as you say, next year is the year of elections, biggest electoral event ever in world history, more than 2 billion people voting, India, Pakistan, Mexico, Taiwan, Britain, the United States. Uh, we put Russia in brackets, thanks to the way that Putin has destroyed Russian democracy. Um, but the real question is, will we see, hopefully, one or two great politicians repeat what Tusk did this year, which is break the populist hold on politics, break through and really make a stand for a better vision of democracy so that we don't have this continual sense of democratic backsliding, democratic mm. decline, democratic collapse. This, by the way, what, what you're saying, I think, lends weight to the argument I've been 
making in recent days and weeks about Labour putting this at the heart of their campaign. I mean, let me ask you now directly, if Keir Starmer wins, becomes Prime Minister, given it has been a huge swing to get to that, if he gets it, would you put him into that category of anti-populist? I think that'd be an amazing um, achievement. I mean, in some ways, you know, Liz Truss is obviously and Boris Johnson greatly helped him. But mm. he has, setting aside for the fact that I'm more on the conservative than Labour side of things, he has turned around the Labour Party very, very quickly. I think you've often mm. said this, he's achieved what it took three Labour leaders to do yeah. very quickly. But, 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 as we say, his net popularity ratings are still worse than that of his party, considerably mm. worse, and a long way behind. You know, he's got negative net popularity. He's not down where Rishi Sunak is, but at this stage, you know, Tony Blair was well ahead in positive terms. David Cameron was well ahead when he was in opposition positive terms. Mm. And Keir Starmer is still down. So I think, you know, yes, it will be a really interesting fight. But let's see if he can begin to get a bit of clarity, courage, excitement. Because we can't have a world in which I think this is the, the, the risk that populists exploit is people sort of winning by default because they've just as a sense of exhaustion and being fed up with the uselessness of the Mm. current government. We really need a a vision for change. Yeah. Okay, there we are. New Year's resolution for the Labour Party, vision for change. That's the thing we need. That's the thing we need to see. And let's look forward to a very busy, productive 2024. Happy New Year. And to you. And a very happy New Year when it comes. I will be in Scotland. You will be where? In Scotland. Oh, different parts of Scotland. Not too far apart, you know. Oh, well, if you're miles. coming anywhere nearby, Alistair, you're I always very likewise. welcome. Come if and kick up, a football with the boys. If you're up in Highlands, I can continue my campaign to get them to join my campaign against private education. Thank you. We will look forward <laughs> to trying to make that work. All right. Lots of love. <laughs> Bye-bye. See you soon. Bye-bye.